Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 243. My name is Cameron English, host as always, joined by Dr. Liza Dunn. Liza, what's going on? How are you? Not much. Busy, busy, running around, but having a good, good week. It's been crazy busy, though. Yeah. So you're moving, you have a full-time job, and you're mom. So you have a lot of free time, I'm guessing. Yes, just a little bit. Get <laughs> 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 a little bit of sleep in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, best wishes on your uh, ridiculous schedule. And in the <laughs> meantime, let's talk about a little bit of science. We've got three stories, as always. So first up, aligned with the views of new House Speaker Mike Johnson, 60% of Americans believe biblical creation myth or that God guided evolution. Next up, revising 10 fact-based perspectives on entrenched food myths. Gene editing is good. Diet soda is fine. Organics is not the answer. And finally, which is better to fight blindness, golden rice or vitamin A supplement pills? So nothing controversial going on here today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But let's, uh, here's a quick rundown of this first story and then we'll get into um, analyzing a little bit. So this is by Philip Bump writing for the Washington Post uh, at the very end of October. And uh, I'm sure everyone remembers that, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago, this was a real contentious issue, this idea that there were a lot of Americans who didn't. Uh, believe in evolution, or they had some sort of a some sort of a twist on it that you know made this, made people in science uncomfortable. Like uh, you know there was evolution, but God directed it, or there was intelligent design, whatever. So that's a really well worn debate. But um, Bump says that it's uh, it's a little bit less than forty percent of Americans reject evolution. So it's a plurality; it's not a majority, but there's still a significant number. And the breakdowns are, um, I suppose, what you would expect. So he points out that. Um, belief in creation and this is just the idea that god created the earth in six six days this is like the genesis story but but literal is is how these people view the the origin of life so it's more common among white evangelical christians trump voters um it's less common among democrats of course they had to insist that everyone knows that people with master's degrees or higher are more likely to believe in evolution as are people who trust npr and pbs as news sources (laughs) So if you drive a Volvo and you listen to NPR, you're you're um, you're more informed, according to the Washington yes. Post. <laughs> um, there isn't much in the way of, of analysis or commentary in the story, so there there isn't much. I think we can supply some of that in a minute, but that's that's the essence of it. It appears that there's still a pretty pretty substantial number of Americans who reject evolution. So, Dr. Liza, what do you uh, what do you think of this? Yeah, I think that um, there's always a lot of finger pointing at what kind of people reject what kind of scientific principles. And there's a lot of commentary about faith in that, in faith-based things. So maybe let's dissect that a little bit. First of all, um, it was a monk that came up with the theory of genetics. Um, So a Catholic monk and a Catholic um, priest also came up with the uh, Big Bang theory, <laughs> and yeah, and so um, so to I, I find it a, a little disingenuous to say that it's all just you know Christians um, that have these beliefs. So, so there are there are a multitude of beliefs with a, that that are people people are hardwired to have faith in something. Right, and that faith may be a religious thing, and that faith may be a you know, it, it, atheism is also faith faith based. It, it, 
because you can't prove there's not a God, right? Oh, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, shots so, fired. <laughs> right? So these are faith-based notions. I bet you you could do the same analysis um, with people looking at whether or not sex is binary, and you would find a plurality of people in a certain demographic that <laughs> would um, also be probably Caucasian. Um, uh, in a certain <laughs> demographic that suggests that um, sex is not binary. Now, whatever you think about gender, there are still a, probably a plurality of highly educated people that are making those claims. So um, that would be faith-based too. So I have my contention is that um, science is science and faith is faith. And I think that it's um, that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive um, as long as you are in pursuit of the truth. And that is the most important thing to adhere to. I think we're getting too divisive and being, being too judgmental of a variety of different perspectives. And I'd like to see it come back to the middle and not get tagged as, you know, elites believe this and, you know, leftists believe this and Christians believe that. And, and that this demonstrates that they have a lack of, um, they have some kind of lack of sophistication. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lack of scientific rigor. So I think you can, you can, you know, point things in all sorts of different directions. Um, so uh, that's my take on this article. I'd like to see a little bit more, what do we have in common and how can we proceed forward? Um, because as of the past month, the world is getting increasingly polarized and we need to start thinking about putting the brakes on that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. It seems that this issue is still being used as sort of a litmus test for admission into polite society. Yes. And um, I, I just think that's bad overall uh, for the reasons you just outlined. <clears throat> but as you and you gave an example of um, people rejecting science when it's politically convenient. And it's not just some average guy who's doing it. You have people in mainstream, powerful academic institutions who are not only standing by as this happens, they are actively endorsing it. Yes. And um, you gave the, you gave the, the sex spectrum example. That's just pure foolishness. Like we talked about last week, but there's a whole movement to unseat obesity as a, as a disease or a medical condition and describe it as a lifestyle. And, you know, all of these ideas about being overweight, we invented these to oppress obese people, right? This is thin privilege. It's the same sort of um, ideology applied to weight. There's all kinds of weird ideas about drug use and drug abuse yeah. that, that are just kind of accepted as mainstream ideas. Um, and the list goes on and on. And I think what bugs me the most is that there are, there are a lot. You can go look this up. If you Google this, you'll find articles in Nature and Science and Scientific American, all the major publications talking about how we need to decolonize science. And what they're talking about is integrating ideas that come from, I suppose you could call them non-Western parts of the world that we know don't work. We know they're false, like, like a creation myth from some other culture besides, you know, uh, Christianity. Or, um, or, or Right, right. Or some idea like, you know, Chinese medicine or one, one of these kind of things. 
there is a movement within science to say we're going to incorporate these ideas, not because we know they work, we don't, we know they don't work, but this is about inclusivity and truth is sort of relative and it's from your vantage point as a, you know, a people. And that's dumb. That's dumb. And, and that's, I'm not saying and that's that. how the anti-vaccine movement insinuated right. itself into medical schools. You have funding from anti-vaxxers in who who are putting lots and lots of money into medical schools. That's how the, these myths got also uh, infiltrated into medical schools with these uh, this alt-med uh, kind of movement. Um, and it, yes, it is in the, in the name of inclusivity. And I'm a big believer in inclusivity. I'm a big believer in that, in, you know, all men were created equal, I think. But you have to also inject the realities of the world in there and the realities, especially the physical realities of the world, which are scientific, right? Scientific truth is true, whether you like it or not. Now, we may have to muddle our way to what that is. That's why we use a scientific method to get there. But uh, undermining it does not advance us any further, right? It just mm -hmm. sets us back. Yeah. Yeah, we see it in, uh, we talk about it a lot in agriculture, but there's this whole idea that, you know, genetic engineering is a new tool for recolonizing Africa and pesticides. And, you know, these are modern Western technologies. And again, that's not always true of some of the technologies developed in these countries. Um, but this is pushed. I mean, again, Scientific American, you'll find a lot of people in the mainstream press who will at least pay lip service to this oh, idea. Yes, and that's... Yeah, but like it's yeah. a top tier medical journal. That's where the anti-vaccine movement got its legs. It's it, it's yeah. it, 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 it and the anti-GMO movement. It, that's where the, that's where all this came from. I mean, it's it's, right. it's infiltrated academic uh, the academic discourse, and it's really really unfortunate. Yeah, I think it, it was the Lancet. They had a special issue a couple of years ago about the, the the sex gender issue, and they called women bodies with vaginas. Because yes. they were so they were so afraid of using the word woman. Or people, they and, said and, people who menstruate, people who menstruate, yeah. and yeah, yeah. it's I I tag them on Twitter with that. Like, come on! In the same in the same uh, journal, that same edition, they yeah. were talking about men having prostate cancer. <laughs> but but Maybe women can't be defined as women. Oh, but men men are in there, and there's this whole this whole okay. issue with so that the term man was all over it. Um, if you want to just go back down the misogyny route, we don't we don't yeah. even get a, we don't even get a sex. <laughs> you are now pregnant people. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. God. Yeah. Anyways, we're, I, I don't want to get too far off the trail here, but I think just the the kind of absurdity here. It's like we're still going to define whether you are a thoughtful, nuanced person by your belief or lack thereof in evolution, but also you can deny. Uh, the sex binary, <laughs> which, yeah. I, and again, I sort of alluded to this last week. I don't understand how you can say, well, evolution is established science. And also I don't believe in, in sex as, as, as <laughs> like, like a key, like a key engine of reproduction. Right. I, like, That's exactly right. You know, so it's like, in other words, you have to partition these, these contrasting conflicting ideas, but then you still want to pretend that, you know, you're the voice of reason you're the voice of skepticism when you're just sort of saying what you're expected to say and you, and if you ask questions, it's like, well, shut up. You know, yeah. that's all there. You know. I said so, you know, that's right. faith-based. You are entitled to your faith-based opinion. 
Yeah. Uh, one, one other thing I'll add, because I grew up in a, a real fundamentalist evangelical church where this was what you were taught, you know, and it's funny, like, I really like the work of Jerry Coyne now, but when I was growing up, like people like Jerry Coyne and Rich, Richard Dawkins, they're like, these were the, this was the all-star team of the bad guys, you know? <laughs> and so, so I sort of, you know, I can appreciate that. And, and I don't want people to say, well, I believe in God, so I'm afraid of this scientific theory. I think that's silly. You know, yeah. there's no reason for that. Um, and I started to get into scholarship. There's people that understand ancient Hebrew and they understand the cultures um, that gave us these, these sort of creation myths or whatever you want to call them. They were not intended as history books. No. And it's, it's, it's okay to say that, you know, I mean, you know, if the people writing these didn't think they were writing a literal story, then maybe you should think before you say, oh yeah, this must be literally true. Cause I read it in English and it says, you know, six days. So, I can appreciate that point. I just, there's no consistency across the spectrum on issues like this. It's like, we're pro-science because we like evolution. And, uh, well, you're a bigot if you think that Africa should have biotech crops. It's like, that's. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 yeah it's crazy, crazy. Now that we've okay. set the world on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Send your angry letters to Liza, like I said last week. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I'd love to talk to people if you have thoughts. Um, we got nothing but good feedback on the last episode, so I'm encouraged okay. by that. But if okay. you uh, if you're out there and you are just boiling and uh, you're shaking in your seat with rage, then you're welcome to come on and talk about this with us. We'd love. We're to. happy to talk to anybody. Yeah. Um, okay, but let's move on. This next story is uh, much more encouraging. This is uh, this is by Tamar Haspel. She's also writing in the Washington Post. Um, and uh, headline on this, rev uh, revising 10 fact-based perspective on, on entrenched food myths. Gene editing is good. Diet soda is fine. Organics is not the answer. Not much to say here in a way of an introduction. This is just a list of silly things that people believe with um, with Tamar Haspel just outlining, out, outlining what the science is. So I really love this. So why don't you pick your favorites? From this list, Liza, and let's let's talk through them. So, what was your top your top one on this that you appreciate? So, I, my top one, just because it's sort of timely, is back to you know, diet soda is not going to hurt you. The you know, sucralose or the aspartame or the diet sugars are, are not going to not going to make you have cancer. They're not going to make you have endocrine disruption. They're not going to make you have any kind of health uh, issues. And they've been they've been tested backwards and forwards, and it gets to a point where you think, what? more can we do because I've obviously all of this testing at taxpayer expense a lot of it mm. um at great expense uh, what does it take to change someone's mind and I think that's a famous kind of quote of uh Tamara Haspel's I think she she thinks about that question a lot what mm -hmm. will it take to change someone's mind? And I think that these, the, her article is going to get kind of de demonstrative of the things, you know, she's trying to dispel mythology. So that's my top one. Um, let's see, what else? i got to look at the uh, rest of them. What, let's see, there were. Yeah, keep looking. I'll, I'll mention one while you while you look for that. The, the first one that stuck out to me, and actually it sort of challenged my assumptions, is that um, agricultural subsidies make, uh, junk food cheap, which explains why we're all so fat. Oh yeah. That was another good one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing that stuck out is she says, and basically the, the idea is that the government subsidizes the production of corn and soy. And if you look at pretty much any snack food or any junk food, quote unquote, um, there's some sort of grain like corn or soy in it. And so the idea is if the, if it's inexpensive to produce these, then there's an incentive to put more of them in the food supply, which means there's 
hot Cheetos and Twinkies and all, you know, corn syrup for soda. All of these things are widely and cheaply available. And that's why everyone's overweight. Um, but she says that uh, subsidies to corn and soy have only decreased the price of these kind of foods by 10%. Yes. And, uh, or excuse me, um, those, that's, that's the price of the crops, but the actual it's food is about 15%. 50%. Right. Right. So she says that's about uh, one, one to 2% price difference when you get to the, finally get to the consumer. And that of course would be imperceptible, uh, which is, which is very interesting. I need to look more into that, but, but that was striking to me because, uh, you know, people just, again, that's sort of a faith-based thing. Like, oh yeah, everyone knows that subsidies make everyone overweight. And that's what the, yeah, that's the claim. The, one of the reasons for also that, that is interesting to me that people do buy extra junk food as opposed to fresh fruit and vegetables and things like that are not only are fresh fruits and vegetables kind of luxury items, it, it costs much more to grow vegetables than it does to, you know, grow crops and things like that. But um, they're, so they're luxury items, they have a very short shelf life. And if you don't have, let's say you have intermittent electricity, because you're in an area that doesn't have, um, you know, you can't, you have a tough time with bills and things like that, you are going to buy things that are going to be able to have a shelf life. And fruits and vegetables don't last that long. And until we kind of figure out some of the other social determinants of why people have issues, um, you, it's not just it's not just like banning food subsidies that's going to do anything. It's actually going to that that will raise food prices, which makes it much more stressful for the people mm-hmm. who are trying to survive. But you can't you can't fruits and vegetables are wonderful. I, there's a fantastic thread that I saw on Twitter when I first got on, and I wish I could um, find it again. I'm gonna see if I can. And it was a young woman who had been homeless with a child and talking about how much McDonald's meant to her. And the reason why it meant a lot to her was because it cost her, she broke down the cost of all of the ingredients it would take to make a hamburger at home Mm. um, and how long it would take to do all of that and to do the same thing at McDonald's and then then have money left over. And she broke the whole thing down. And McDonald's was feeding her and her child, um, you know, a full square meal. And for those of people who've never been hungry, people think, oh, you know, McDonald's is, you know, that that's junk food and this, that, and the other. It is the only company or one of the very few companies that you will find in, um, you know, neighborhoods that have uh, poor, low-income neighborhoods with that. And it provides jobs for people and it provides quick access to a full meal to people. Um, and so I actually do not have a huge problem with McDonald's. I think that you shouldn't overeat this, the food. But when you, when I saw this thread, it was like an epiphany. This is, this is it's a, when you put grocery stores in food deserts, one of the reasons why people don't buy fruits and vegetables as much is one, they're expensive. Two, they have a very short uh, shelf life. And three, they don't fill you up. So I think that we need to come at this from a very different perspective than we need to rearrange the farm bill or we need to, you know, decrease subsidies. And if you rearrange the farm bill anyway, the 85% of the farm bill is SNAP, which is food subsidies or subsidies for school lunches. So I I think that um, 
once again, we're taking it from a very sort of uh, highly educated perspective, trying to address this problem and without understanding the implications of what, well, this is, what this actually, how this actually impacts people. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, that was also one of her myths is that uh, if we just get grocery stores into the inner city or into rural America or what, like whatever, you know, then we'll, then we'll really get obesity under wraps. And she just says, that's not true. And she's yeah. still, which is interesting. She still insists that, well, you know, we could get groceries and grocery stores in there and then we could educate people about eating vegetables. And then we could, so it's like, if we do this and then we make 15 other really intimate changes to people's lifestyles, then obesity will be solved. But None of that stuff works. And I've looked at a lot of the research on this. And it's really funny because they'll say, well, you know, putting in more sidewalks doesn't encourage walking and getting rid of uh, vending machines doesn't encourage people to drink less soda. They just go buy it at the store. And, and so they go through this list in one of these reviews I was reading and they go, you know, none of this stuff has worked. So we should like really double down, like let's do it even more. And it's like, it's like, you just, you know, you know, like there's, there's an element here of like, we're really uncomfortable with the idea that people will make choices that we don't agree with. Like, like it's, you know, like, like the idea that there's going to be someone who's going to drink Coca-Cola over water because it tastes better, even if it, you know, puts them at risk for type two diabetes, if they drink too much, we just don't like to admit that there's and a, um, we're, yeah. and the same token, by the same token, we're celebrating it by saying, Oh, obesity is healthy. So, right. I mean, so that's a mixed message. What is, what is, what is right, right? We've yeah. just gotten to, oh, you're, you know, this is thin privilege, this, that, and the other. But yeah. whatever you do, don't look at Coca-Cola. Right. This is, But this is the sort of absurdity we were getting at a minute ago. And uh, I, I think I mentioned it with the American Academy of Pediatrics, right? They A few months ago, they were tying themselves in knots trying to say, like, like childhood obesity is bad, but also fat shaming is bad too. And how dare you, your couches in your office better be big enough for your patients, you know, but obesity is bad. It's like, it's like they can't, it's just this strange thing. Um, oh, and I, the reason I brought that up, I'm reading a book right now by a retired physician. His name's Theodore Dalrymple. And he was a psychiatrist in uh, a poor area of London. There was a hospital and a prison right adjacent. And he worked at both of them. And one of the points he stresses in this book, he's and he fundamentally rejects this idea that like people are just born into circumstance and it's not fair and they do drugs because their life is just overweight. He says no. And he gives example after example. You know, a patient will come in and she's on heroin and she's overdosed, you know, so he has to treat her and he goes, Well, why why did you start doing drugs? She's like, They were free. And it's like like that is that as simple as that, that could be the answer in some cases. It's like, you know, she had a boyfriend and her boyfriend said, You want some free drugs? She's like, Yeah, what the hell? And then, you know. And then but like, right. But it's like you can't solve there's no easy villain. I mean, I guess there is, but there's no like, well, you know, it's 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 like some racial animus, that's why she does drugs, or because she's poor, that's why she does drugs. It's like, no, you ask her and she says, I wanted to. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and so this is the same kind of situation that we had to take. We, there's this whole thing in medicine where you have to do maintenance and certification to stay board certified. So you've got to pay your medical societies a gajillion dollars, which they all take off and, and, and go live high up the hog with and whatever. But anyway, that's a separate note. We, so one of the tests that we had to take they, you have to read papers, and then you have to answer questions about the papers. And this is called the lifelong learning um, assessment. Um, and so, LLSA. And uh, they were taught. We had to read this paper about the opioid crisis, 
and in at the at uh, the University of Washington Emergency Department, they have posted on the uh, sign saying we're not going to give you more than this, and opioids are you know not our first line treatment, um, and it. And the conclusion of the paper is that this major intervention uh, wound up making doctors prescribe two less pills per prescription. And that was going to really change the, the face of the opioid crisis, right? Two less pills per prescription for an acute injury, right? <laughs> so you broke your ankle, two less pills. Okay, fine. The same day that we went over this article, Oregon decriminalized these decriminalized heroin. <laughs> you say what you want about drug companies, say what you want about you know pill pushers and all this stuff like that. Decriminalizing heroin, and I think there there are all sorts of issues around how many how many people are in jail for drug things. But regardless, decriminalizing heroin is not helping that situation, and you cannot point to the doctors. Um, or the pharmaceutical companies when the uh, uh, harm reduction strategy seems to have gotten this over the past 20 years to a massive homeless in fentanyl uh, using problem. It's, it's out of control despite all of the things that we've been trying to do is harm reduction. Yeah, I would really recommend that book called Life at the Bottom because he talks all about that. And um, there is some space for harm reduction on certain issues, certainly. But I think a lot of times people use it. It becomes a vehicle for uh, casual drug use. You know, yes. so it's like, we'll make sure people have clean needles and they have a safe place to inject their heroin. Uh, okay, next issue. And right, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's there's yeah. little thought or there's less thought, I should say, that goes into, um, you know, let's get people off of these drugs <laughs> that could yeah. kill them in one shot, you know, so. Um, anyways, I was going to say something else. I don't think it really matters. I, I think that the, the, I guess the overarching point for this point is, um, there's choice and sometimes people make bad decisions and it, it is what oh, it is. Yeah. You know, you, you try to intervene and I'm sure you can speak to that as a physician, right? Sometimes people don't want to do what's good for them. <laughs> but that's what you did. I mean, you said it, it was available. It was free for this, right. this patient. So, and so that's, that's the issue. Yeah. Um, some of these, uh, I don't think we need to spend time on like all eggs taste the same. Tilapia is good. I'm like, okay, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, carbs aren't uniquely fattening. What do you, what do you think about that? Cause I mean, they're obviously, you know, your blood sugar has some role in your, your metabolic health and, and your weight. So what do you think about that one? Yeah, I think complex carbohydrates are probably less fattening than, you know, very easy carbohydrates. So, so if you're eating, uh, you know, Twinkies every day versus, versus you know, whole breads and grains and things like that, I think that uh, there's there's a difference there. So I think that um, I think that you want to ha have everything in moderation. I think you want a balance of carbs. I think you want a balance of uh, proteins and fats. Um, and so, you know, low-carb diets, I think, can make you... Thin, um, if you stick to them and you lose weight quickly with them, but I find that a lot of these diets go up and down and up and down and up and down. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, I, I think that not all carbs are the same, and I and I also think that they're not uniquely fattening. I think that once again, if you eat a lot of carbohydrates, you will get fat quick. Um, mm -hmm. But 
you know, in moderation, you won't necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Standard, unsexy, but nevertheless correct advice from our resident physician here. I think that's mm-hmm. that's the gist of them, right? We are, we talk about organic a lot. We talk about gene editing a lot. Uh, second one's awesome. The first one's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's move on to this this last story. This one I think is an interesting piece because uh, it gets a lot right, but it also gets a few fundamental things uh, incorrect. And I want to talk about that. So this is by um, uh, Maria Stitch and Mavic Condi, writing for the Good Men Project. And it's, uh, the title is, Which is Better to Fight Blindness, Golden Rice or Vitamin A Supplement Pills? If anyone doesn't know, Golden Rice is just, uh, well, there's several, but it's, it's a genetically engineered crop uh, with increased uh, beta carotene. So when you eat it, your body converts the beta carotene into vitamin A. And as Liza can explain, there's all sorts of very serious medical complications that can flare up if you are vitamin A deficient. Um, so that's, that's, that's the, like the very basic, that's what the crop is and what it does. Um, it's been in develop or was in development for more than two decades, regulatory hurdle after regulatory hurdle after activist campaign, after activist campaign, trying to keep this away from people who need it primarily in Southeast Asia. Um, this article is a great overview. And again, as for, we'll get to the caveats in a second, but it's a pretty good develop or overview of how, uh, the rice was developed. Um, and then it's a cool look at how it's being deployed. So there are farmers finally growing this in the Philippines. Uh, there's some, some comments in here about how they're profiting from it. Um, and uh, it's being incorporated into nutrition programs. So, for example, in school lunch programs, there are some that are uh, adding this into the, the ingredients, into the, the uh, uh, options they serve at school, which is great. I think this is what you're start, starting to see. Um, and there's benefit here. And I think we, we've established that pretty clearly. Um, and then I have some other thoughts, but uh, do you have anything to add here before we get into the nitty gritty? Uh, yeah, no, I think golden rice is it, it really, it's unfortunate that it has been sort of on the back burner for 20 years because of fears about GMOs and um, uh, uh, misconceptions about companies and things like that and control of the food supply. And so I feel like that having worked in developing countries and having seen malnutrition right up front and personally, mm-hmm. um, this is a good solution for preventing a completely uh, devastating illness that we don't see in the West. And the reason why we don't see it in the West is because we have fortified food and we have access to good food. There are three uh, grasses uh, that feed over 60% of the world's population, and those are what wheat, rice, and corn. Um, and they are good because they fill you up, and they're hardy, so you can grow them in a lot of different environments. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they're really critical, staple crops. Um, but they tend to not be rich in mic- micronutrients, and that's where you see these micro- micro- micronutrient deficiencies. And it, vitamin A-associated blindness, it, uh, d- deficiency-associated blindness, is a devastating disease. Kids, their corneas, you need vitamin A for your epithelium of your skin and your and your epithelium is the lining, the cells that line your skin and your corneas and things like that. Um, you also need it for your retina um, and so you can see. And then kids who get vitamin A deficiency will have essentially corneal melts. This, the, the cornea, the lining will break down. And imagine what it feels like when you get a little thing in your eye. Now imagine that your 
cornea dissolving. That's that's what happens, right? Yeah. And it's it's not only painful, but you you know you lose your vision, um, and then quite a, you become immunosuppressed and things like that. So once again, people in the West who have adequate vitamin A stores and are lobbying against this with all of their might. Um, don't have their children to have this happening to their children. And I think it's absolutely unethical that, that this has been allowed to go on as long as it has. What's um, the blindness is a, an important one, but doesn't it affect your immune system as well? Like, yes, like, you get immunosuppressed. Talk, yes. Yeah. Talk about yeah. some of the consequences of that just before we move on. So, so there's a, a, another thing that can happen. So what happens also with your skin, right? So your skin's your first line of, defense. It's one of the most important parts of your immune system because it keeps things out. So when uh, vitamin A is necessary for, uh, and, and several other things that you find in here, they mentioned in this article, we'll get into that in a minute, but um, uh, uh, gluten is one of them. But um, if you don't, if you don't have enough um, vitamin A, not only do you get the corneal issues, but you, you don't get fluidity of your cell membranes. So that it makes cell membranes more fluid. So your skin gets dried out and prone to breakdown. And so you can get, um, you can get big ulcerating. I've seen children with big ulcerating necrotic lesions on their face, right? And it, it, it's literally eating away their faces. Um, you can get immunosuppression. Uh, and it, so kids who get the combination of measles and vitamin A deficiency it's got a sky high mortality associated with it. Um, it it's, you know, it, it, it's so critical for so many different functions um, and not just blindness that, that kids who go blind there. And, and this is tends to happen shortly after weaning, right? Cause milk has vitamin E in it. And um, so, so, when kids, the under five mortality really goes up around the time of weaning and shortly thereafter, because then you're missing protein fat um, that's normally in breast milk, right? Protein fat, and vitamin A, and other vitamins, and, and, and things like that. And, and not to mention um, the passive transfer of antibodies that mom has, you get, the baby gets, uh, this is why people promote breastfeeding so much, right? Because of all of the benefits of, of the nutrient sources in, in, in breast milk. And as, as the, as the baby grows, the breast milk, con, you know, composition changes. And, and it's, it's fascinating to watch. It's a very interesting science, but long and short is at weaning, they're much at much higher risk for protein, calorie mal malnutrition, and uh, vitamin deficiencies. And then, so um, the vitamin deficiencies can so with the, the intestine um, it has a layer of these epithelial cells, two different epi different kinds of epithelial cells, but they're important for absorption and stuff like that. So if you don't have vitamin A, those cells stop absorbing as well too because of the changes in the epithelium that you get with the vitamin A deficiency. So you get, and with those changes, you also have malabsorption syndromes. Um, so, so you get worsening of, uh, of uh, your nutritional status. So yeah, so there, there, there's a tough, it, it's a difficult problem. This covers a lot of different uh, organ systems, um, and it has a very high mortality associated with it. And so, 
Um, I love that <laughs> these two men and, and Syngenta came up with this program because it was designed to try to prevent a terrible uh, cause of death in, in kids. Yeah. And that, the reason I wanted you to go into all that is because there is a real problem and it already harms people. So when we do these sort of, you know, uh, risk only calculations, we want to talk about, and we'll get into these now, um, you know, the, you know, the rice could be harmful. It could have environmental impacts. And, you know, meanwhile, while you're waxing poetic about all of these hypothetical risks, there's actual children dying. dying. So that's, that's annoying. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's any ill will on the, on the part of the authors of the story. I just, it no. sounds to me like they, they try to do the balanced journalism thing and they're not terribly familiar with the topic. That's what it reads that, like to me. That's so, exactly what it reads like. And, so, and I think that a lot of people are well-intended. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they interviewed, I forget, I don't, I'm not familiar with the name, but it sounded like someone who's affiliated with an organization that we'd probably deal with a lot. Um, same kind of talking points. So at one point in the story, they interview someone who says, you know, if we could just get, get these children to eat their vegetables, you know, this wouldn't be a problem. And I thought, you know, how, that's really simple. And if it's true, then sure, you know, just right. Cut them some more, uh, you know, vegetables, whatever. But this is a quote, this is from Adrian Dubach, who's one of the scientists at Syngenta. And I'm a big fan of his because he made sure that patent disputes did not hold this project up. That's exactly right. I've met him. He's, he's a fascinating guy. Um, I've, yeah. I've never met him. I've talked to him on the phone. He's a, he's a great guy. And he's, he, he's, does not suffer fools, which I also no, appreciate. No, he did not. Um, anyways, but so Syngenta and Monsanto both had some intellectual property over the technology involved in Golden Rice. And uh, Adrian Dubach got both companies to say, okay, just use what you need to. We're not going to profit off this project. So he wrote a paper a couple of years ago addressing this very point, because this is a common criticism. Um, and he, he says, direct quote here, he says, it's been estimated that young children between one and three would need to eat eight servings of dark green leafy vegetables per day in order to meet the recommended dietary allowance for vitamin A. These facts have resulted in the conclusion, and he's quoting another scientist here who says, of the virtual impossibility for most poor young children to meet their vitamin A requirements through vegetable and fruit intake alone. So, I mean, that's sort of implied in the fact that golden rice was developed, but I want to just get that out there very clearly. This is not a matter of, you know, kids in the Philippines like, no, I don't want any leafy green vegetables, right? That's a very American sort of a, an objection. And kids here can get away with that because they can eat other sources of <laughs> vitamin A. But remember, we just said that vegetables are a luxury. <laughs> right. right? We, it, it's hot. They have a short shelf life, especially in tropical conditions where you don't have things that can cool the refrigerators and things like that that mm -hmm. can keep them cool. Right. And so, and they're expensive and they're hard to grow. Um, they require lots and lots of inputs, lots of water, lots of pesticides, things like that. So mm -hmm. if you can develop a crop that can do this for you um, and prevent this illness, that's, that's nothing short of miraculous. It's absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, that claim is, yeah, not good. The other claim that I thought was interesting in here was that, oh, you know, these kids don't get have enough um, fat in their diet um, and they don't have enough zinc in their diet. So this, this beta carotene, which is a precursor of vitamin A, which is what you get in golden rice um, and in fruits and vegetables, by the way, um, that, that, people won't absorb it well without those things. 
So that's that's one of the claims that one of the people they interviewed uh, mm-hmm. made. Well, so first of all, in um, the this is this particular article is talking about the national program they have, feeding program they have for at-risk kids who are malnourished, and they mix it up with mung bean and coconut um, milk. And mung bean has lots of fat and has lots of zinc, and coconut milk does too. So it actually, yeah. you are absorbing the beta carotene. And I would say that it's, I would contend that it's probably better to get that however you can get it, because clearly we've had vitamin A on the market globally, inexpensively, for ever since it was available. And yeah. we have not been able to produce, we've not been able to get it to deploy it to enough people to prevent this. So the vitamin A story, it'd be wonderful if we could, we can't. So this is a way of getting it through the diet and the claim that it's not going to get absorbed is, is just ridiculous. The other health claim that was made was that, or it wasn't really a health claim. They, they were talking about um, zeaxanthin or zeaxanthin and lutein, right? And, that's, and, and those being in high concentrations in the kernel. Um, and that's why the kernel turns yellow. Those are other um, carotenoids. So, so they're, they don't get turned into vitamin A. But they are specifically used as retin, by the retina, by the eye, in retinal protection. So they prevent what we call photooxidation. Um, so they prevent the breakdown of, um, uh, uh, they stabilize the cell membranes in the uh, retina and the macula so that you prevent the UV light from damaging the eyes. So you get extra bang for your buck with this. And I think he was saying that he, he seemed to indicate that he was concerned about those being in the actual kernel of the rice. And so I, I'm not sure I I agree with that being a concern. Yeah, it, it, it's it's strange to think about. And again, it's it's considering the risks and the benefits. Here, a couple other examples here. So um, there's also this concern that, and you get this with every transgenic crop that's ever been commercialized in the history of ever. You're going to plant this and then it's going to pollute the farmer's field down the road. And then pretty soon we're going to have Franken corn and Franken wheat and Franken blah, 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 right? We're going to have... Right, we're gonna have a zombie apocalypse all started because you wanted herbicide tolerant corn, you greedy jerks. Right. <laughs> um, so that that point ha- has been brought up here too. And I want to stress that this is also from um, a study that that Adrian Dubuck was involved in. So they point out um, talking about this issue, they say this uncertainty, however, applies not just to golden rice, but to any other new rice variety. Humans have consumed rice for more than four thousand years, including varieties that have been crossed genetically across multiple strains. So there they're just talking about rice, but with lots of crops, that's possible, right? You get all kinds of cross-pollination and that, I mean, that's part of the way you go, hey, we got a new, better kind of grape, better kind of, you know? So that's not novel to golden rice, this idea of contamination. So again, if it was 1999, this may have been a reasonable point to at least bring up as you're developing the technology, but now all, you know, 24 years later or whatever. No. These have all been tested in the field. They have the right. same yield. They, they have the same nutrient component composition. This has all been tested. Unlike, unlike for organic or conventional, we have tested these things in real life conditions for decades. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they're called, uh, for anyone that wants to look it up, they're called uh, compositional analyses. And this is one of the reasons, because everyone will say, well, you haven't done a clinical trial to show us that this works. We want clinical research, blah, 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 clinical research. Um, and as you point out, we don't have that for most foods we eat because it's just really unnecessary. But when you do a study like this, you can look at the nutritional composition of a food and you can go, well, it's got this much vitamin, blah, 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 and this much vitamin and this much micronutrient or this much mineral or whatever. And you can compare it to something that we already eat. So like another variety of rice that's already a staple in the food supply. And you can say, well, it's no different, excluding the fact that it has a bunch more beta carotene in it, which is what we want it to have. Yep. So there's really, there's really nothing to object to. And one other thing before I jump back in here, it's funny to me because they insist that this is probably harmful and we don't want people to eat it, but they also want you to feed it to people to show that it's not harmful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I just got a kick out of that. And then of course, then you have to have, if you do a clinical study, you need a control group of vitamin A deficient kids who you're going to withhold, um, you know, an intervention from that might help them, which is of course unethical. So nobody's going to do yes. that study anyway. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, uh, moral of the story, golden rice is fine. And we have literally more than two decades of research on every possible question you could want to ask. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, and once again, it's nothing short of miraculous that science has made us be able to do this. And, and you can have faith in that. <laughs> I see you brought it back around there just to, just to irritate <laughs> anyone who was already annoyed. <laughs> um, Final thing, there's no patent on golden rice. We sort of alluded to this a minute ago, but they also say in the story that far, some farmers are afraid that, you know, golden rice is going to contaminate their fields and then they're going to get sued or punished for having a patented crop on their property. There is a there is a license that says anyone can grow this and they can't be charged more than the standard price for, for rice. Um, and no one can add this to another commercial trade. That's all yeah. the license says. You can read it online. That's all that's in there. No one's going to get sued in the Philippines because, you know, they, they, they got some golden rice blowing onto their land. Right. Yeah. We're not going to have another Percy Schmeiser no. <laughs> situation, <laughs> which was fake anyway. And it, we'll talk about that some other time. Okay. Yeah, we should. Yes. Yeah. Good stuff. Really, really enjoyed talking about all this. I uh, hope you were edified or annoyed by our challenging of your ideas. <laughs> um, in the meantime, we'll be back uh, back next week for 2.44. Follow us on social media. By the way, I've been saying you're on occasion. I say your Twitter handle wrong. It's Dr. Liza, Dr. Liza MD. MD. Yeah. yeah. I was saying, I was just saying your name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think it's in the bottom <laughs> okay. of the screen. Our producer puts it in the bottom of the screen. So my bad <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> if you're trying to find Liza and you're like, this stupid handle doesn't work. So it's at Dr. Liza MD. I am at Cam J English. Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. Go check them out, read their stuff, because they put this on for us. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time. All right. Bye-bye.